Are you encouraged already? Yeah, amen. Praise God. I don't need to preach, do I? I was looking for nodding heads out there. Thank you, Michael. You do encourage me, my friend. God bless you and Lisa and your family. Well, my name is Tommy. I'm the lead pastor here. You've heard from my wife already, and uh, I'm grateful to be here. I'm excited for what God has for us digging into this chapter together in Romans chapter 9. You can make your way there. We're back in Romans this week. I'm grateful for the, the men who are able to fill this pulpit. Our preaching bench goes very deep here now and even deeper with, uh, with guys like Michael and Bill Hicks is a retired pastor that, that came here too and uh, so many others that God has called and gifted uh, with the, that are, who are apt to teach. So turn to Romans 9. We'll read that in just a second. I just want to pause and pray, just acknowledge why we're here and, and how desperate we are. We need, we need God. To, to show up and to teach us and to help us. We need to engage. The whole series in Romans, all 16 chapters, is called Engage. We want to engage with God. We want to engage His Word. We want to engage with ourselves, really, and we want to engage with an unbelieving world who desperately needs what God has put inside of us. So let's pause and pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the testimony we've heard, the music we've sang, the prayers we've, we've said to you. Thank you for your very present help in time of need. Thank you for the work that, that you have begun in each of us, and we have the promise that you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You are the divine author, and you work and move in mysterious ways. You call us to places that shock us and surprise us, Lord, and overwhelm us, but you you not only uh, call us there, Lord, you provide and give us the resources and the strength and the encouragement we need. And that's been the case for me here. My, my testimony is similar in so many ways, Lord. You called me to a surprising work of planning this church, and you've brought surprising people alongside to encourage me. Lord, I had no idea what was going to happen, and I'm just blown away at your grace. And, and I'm thrilled at, at what you have for us today in this passage. So I pray I could just get out of the way, and we can encounter you together. And you would open our eyes and open our hearts, give us faith to believe these promises, challenge us, Lord, where we need to be challenged, encourage us, where we need to be encouraged. I can't even imagine, Lord, a small church like Grace Life trying to hit every single person where they're at, meet the need that they have spiritually. It's an impossible, imposing, um, tall order. I can't do. Uh, only you can do that. So send your spirit even now to, to minister to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 9. We're going to read just the first five verses together. And I think we'll put it on the overhead for you if we're, if we're able to do that. If not, it's fine. I got you, got you bailed out. I got my Bible here. Romans chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and un ceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
Now, those of you who, who have kind of an idea of what Romans 9 is about, the Apostle Paul is about to take us deep, deep into rich, pregnant theology. It's profound, it's mysterious, it's heavy. That's chapter 9 and a little bit of 10. And then at the end of 10 and going up into 11, he's going to, uh, he's going to elevate us and take us up high in praise and worship. But first, before he does that, Paul wants us to see his tears. He wants us to feel his broken heart for unbelievers, for those who are outside. You know, we have a motto here at Grace Life, and it's not just a motto. It's not just some clever gimmick. We don't really do clever. We're not clever enough to come up with marketing slogans and gimmicks, but this is mission, and we say this. We even have t-shirts with this on us to remind us why we're here, and it's this. We are the insiders who exist for the outsiders. That's why we're here, friends. Everything else, we can do better in heaven than that. We can pray better in heaven. We can worship better in heaven. We can have better potlucks in heaven, right? <laughs> we can have potlucks till Jesus comes back here, but they're going to be better in heaven. There's one thing we cannot do in heaven. We can't evangelize. We can't share the gospel with unbelievers. We can share it and celebrate it with ourselves, and we will. The song of the Lamb is going to go on for all eternity. The gospel is never going to get old. It's eternally interesting. Even angels long to look into it, right? They're so intrigued by it. But evangelism's over. It's done. The mission field is, is going to be in a different place when we're in heaven and when the great separation comes. So Paul wants to instruct us here. Before he takes us deep into theology, and this is theological anyway, uh, and takes us high up into praise, he wants us to see and feel his broken heart. And I think it's so appropriate because what Paul, what Paul could have done is just jump into to verse 6. You know, the, the very fact that Romans 9 is right here in the Bible, right after chapter 8. Chapter 8, he has talked about security. He's talked about assurance. He's talked about God's covenantal faithfulness and promises to us. We are secure in Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're His forever. Forever. Paul anticipates the people that he was sending this epistle to, this letter, the letter to the church at Rome. It would have a lot of Romans, a lot of Gentiles, but it would also have some Jews. And he, he is a good teacher. He's anticipating an objection, a question. They're saying, so God calls us Right. God foreknew us. Right. God anchors us and secures us. Correct. And we're his forever. We can never fall away. That's right. And they say, well, then what about the Jews? What about the Israelites? What about the Hebrews, Paul? God called them. God foreknew them. He made covenant promises to them. And look, they rejected him. By and large, Israel had like fallen away and been cut off. Paul knew that people would, he knew people would, would introduce that objection. And he's a good teacher and he wants to answer it. And what he could have done is gone right into verse 6 where he says, well, listen, it's not that the word of God has failed. He could have gone right into his argument, but he didn't. He's a good apostle. He's a wise teacher. He's a very careful thinker. And I think Paul is, is demonstrating something really vital and important for us. He wants us to see what a heart for outsiders looks like. That's the title of this message, A Heart for Outsiders. And I pray, especially for those of us that are so excited to get into sovereign electing grace and talk about predestination and talk about all those glorious things, and we will and we are. First, we've got we to slow down for a second. Here's like another test. We've already done two introductions, the rules of engagement and all of that. I'm not going to rehash that. But this is so critical. These are five verses. We need to really slow down and chew on them. And if I could outline this, I, I do my best to outline things just to help us walk through it together. Oh man, I'm going to have to start wearing glasses now for sure. 
the days are over. I can't even see that big screen TV back there. Um, so I'm, I'm, we're going to ask three questions here. Let me look at it and make sure I didn't forget it. All right. Number one, does your heart break over the unbelief around you? Does your heart break over the unbelief around you? Paul says, I have unceasing anguish and great sorrow. It was unceasing. It was never-ending. It was deep. It was profound. It broke his heart. Seeing the unbelief of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews. So that's the first question. Does your heart break over the unbelief? How do you cultivate, how do you cultivate a heart for outsiders? That's really what this message today, this sermon is addressing. And number one, ask yourself this question. Does your heart break over the unbelief around you? And, and I would say this, the unbelief inside of you. That's another sermon for another day. So ask yourself that question. That's where you start. If you want to be an evangelist, if you want to be an effective evangelist, that's where it starts. It's a broken heart over unbelief. Number two, what sacrifices are you making to reach outsiders? The Apostle Paul says, were it possible, and I don't get too caught up in, the Apostle Paul is willing to forego his, he said, were it possible, it's not. It says, basically, in Greek, if I could pray, it's, it's, a, it's not possible, that he would be willing, if it were possible, if he could, to trade his individual salvation for the corporate salvation of all the Jewish people. What sacrifice are you willing to make for people to know Christ that don't know him? And third, how have you responded to your spiritual privileges? Now, I don't know that we'll get to that today. We may. We may. We may just tread into it. But that's, that's what I really want to drive home is that, man, we live in, everyone's talking about privilege right now. And the way the conversation goes, people get angry about it, which I understand. I'm not going to get political. But, but Paul talks about privilege here. We have so many privileges in the West when it comes to Christianity, biblical Christianity, Protestant evangelical Christianity, and there's parallels to what Paul is sharing. These people should have known Jesus. The Israelites should have embraced Christ as Messiah. It's one of the most stunning acts of betrayal, like cosmic betrayal that the world has ever seen. That when the Messiah, who was a Jew, walked into the scene, John 1 verse 11 says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. It's easy for us to say, that's horrific, that's tragic, that's terrible. We'll just consider the privileges that you have as an American in 2023. We'll talk about that a little bit. But I probably don't even have to make that point. You already know it, right? And I get this too, guys. Listen, they say if you want a congregation to be convicted and crestfallen, talk about prayer and evangelism, right? And today we're talking about evangelism. And listen, the Holy Spirit will convict us. And you know the difference between conviction and condemnation because the Holy Spirit's gentle, right? And Satan's not gentle. <laughs> Satan will say, you're the worst Christian who's ever lived. There's no forgiveness for you. Christ wants to draw you close, cleanse you, forgive you, restore you, and send you back out, right? So my desire today is not heap condemnation on you. Not at all. My desire is not for you to say, be like Paul. Even though Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. My desire is for you to honestly ask yourself these questions. Because Charles Spurgeon said this. There's only two types of Christians in the world. Missionaries or imposters. The only option. That, that quote always convicted me, man. I want to I do a better job of representing Christ to the unbelievers around me. Not the ones that aren't, not the imaginary ones that we read about, right? And we train to talk to uh, the ones that are right here in your circle of, of, of influence, right here in your network. 
So I don't know how far we'll get today, but uh, we're going to start right here. Does your heart break over the unbelief around you? That's question one. This is where theology starts. Now look, I know unbelief angers us sometimes. Oh, can I get real? <laughs> Everybody got quieter. <laughs> Everybody's like, I'm not angry. Are you annoyed by the unbelief around you? I am. I get annoyed all the time because unbelief expresses itself, right? People don't share your Christian worldview. They're not sympathetic to your Christian worldview. They're not sympathetic to your views on sexual ethics, are they? Or finances, or conflicts, or politics. None of those things an unbeliever is probably going to share with you. And if we're honest, it's irritating. It's disappointing. It's annoying. It, it, and it can enrage us. I met with 31 guys in my living room last week. I was blown away at all the people the Lord brought. And we talked about righteous indignation. And one of the first points that I made, not all anger is sin. There's two commands in the Bible to be angry. Did you know that? Ephesians 4, be angry, that's a sin, and sin not. <laughs> uh, and there's another one in James. It says, let every one of you be slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to anger. The Bible doesn't say no anger. It says slow to anger. And then we talked about, okay, well, how do we know if our anger is righteous? And I gave, and I gave the uh, qualifications, and as I reflect on my anger, I hardly ever meet the qualifications for righteous indignation. And if, and if I'm honest, you don't either. You don't either. Are you angry at actual sin? <laughs> First of all, not just that my kids do so many things that annoy me that aren't sin. They just annoy me, and I get angry. <laughs> I'm going off on a tangent here. You get what I'm saying? The Apostle Paul's heart was broken by the unbelievers. And listen, they had a hit on Paul. Do you know that? You read the book of Acts? The Bible's not boring. For, yeah. I think 40 Jews took a vow together that they would neither eat nor drink until the Apostle Paul was executed because they were so angry. They felt like he was such a traitor and a rebel to the cause of Judaism. They wanted him dead. They even were waiting in ambush for him to be in transport from one jurisdiction to another to be on trial. And they took that vow. And Paul heard about it. And Paul wasn't angry. Would you be angry? Somebody's got a hit on you for serving King Jesus. I'd be hacked. I would be, I would be irate, man. I would be ready to take them out. Paul never, now he defended himself when he was beaten. He said, look, I'm a Roman citizen. Is that okay for you guys to beat a Roman citizen? And they were like, uh-oh, he's a Roman citizen. Watch out. He stood up for his rights as a citizen of Rome and as a Jew. But Paul didn't get angry at unbelief. It broke his heart. It absolutely tore him to pieces. And as I evaluate my feelings toward unbelievers, I got to be honest, guys. I'm your pastor. I just want to walk in the light with you. I get angry more often than I get brokenhearted. I do. I just get angry. I just want people, we just act like Christians, okay? I don't really care if you are or not. Just act like Christians and make my life better, right? Drive the speed limit and get out of my way. <laughs> Agree with me politically, agree with me theologically. My life would be so much easier if everyone would just pretend to be a Christian, right? If we're honest, if we're walking in the light here, that wasn't the Apostle Paul. He was brokenhearted, absolutely brokenhearted. His sorrow was deep, his anguish was unending. We're supposed to, as Christians, have anguish, not disgust, not try to avoid unbelievers. But to let our lives interact with them. Let our lives overlap with them. Why? Because we know their plight. We were there once. We were ignorant. We were blind. We were held captive. There were scales over our eyes. 
We didn't get it. We didn't understand. You heard what Pastor Michael Wyckoff said, talking to his pastor Steve. He didn't understand, right? God has to lift those veils. We were strangers to God's grace. We were aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. This is the only place where, where grief can happen, guys. Down here right now, grief that leads us to leverage our life for unbelievers. When we're in heaven, listen, the unbelief of people in judgment is not going to hold us hostage in heaven. Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. I don't know how that's going to work. What if we have people in our, in our very family who end up perishing in their belief? Will we remember them? I don't know, but I know this. When we're in heaven and we're restored and we're glorified, there's going to be no more tears, no more sadness, not, not an ounce. And God is going to bottle up all our tears down here. I don't know how that's going to work out. I'm eager to see how it is. Here we weep. Here we lament. Here we have unceasing anguish and deep sorrow. We groan. But in eternity, it's going to be over. Valentine's Day is coming up. And one of my, I was listening to this with my 16-year-old daughter. And she was looking at me like, you're weird. Uh, there's, there's a Scottish band from the 70s named Nazareth. I don't know how many people have heard of that. And they had this haunting song, Love Hurts. Have you ever heard it? I'm tempted. And I heard, Bill, that now I can sing more often since you sang at communion last week. <laughs> I'm tempted to sing it, but I won't. I'll just read a lyric. <laughs> Love Hurts. <laughs> no, I'm not going to sing it. Love is like a cloud. It holds a lot of rain. Love Hurts. It's uh, that song, when you listen to it, and you just hear, it just reminds me of the Apostle Paul, he's just weeping. He's just torn up about the unbelief around him, especially because it's his kinsman. He's like King David before him, who said, rivers of tears flow from my eyes because men do not keep your word. It's like Jeremiah. He said, oh, that, that I had a place I could go and weep for the unbelief and the tragedy of my people. John Knox, one of the reformers. He was reflecting Paul's heart when he said, give me Scotland or I die. Man, I just want to, I want to say, Lord, give me DeLand or I die. Give me Orange City or I die. Give me Lake Helen and Osteen or I die. But if I'm honest, man, I just, that's not where I'm at a lot of the time. I need this reminder. Maybe you do too. And let me say this. Maybe this is a rabbit trail. Included in this anguish, anguish is this. That, guys, the gospel brings division. Maybe this will help you today. The gospel brings division. There is a great divide and separation when you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Colossians says you are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, and you're brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and you're born again. You're regenerated. You're quickened. You're resurrected. You're, you're a brand new person. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. And that includes your relationships, your discernment, your understanding, your values, your loyalties, the world order in your life. Everything is brand new. And all things, as he quoted before, old things pass away, all things become new. And there's this dividing line where here are unbelievers over here, and here is you now uh, immersed into the body of Christ, brand new, babe in Christ. You've got this whole new family. You've got new affections. You've got a new way of thinking. You've got a new worldview. Everything changes. And there's a group of people that aren't in sympathy with that at all. They don't embrace that. They don't agree with that. In fact, the Bible says they can't even understand that in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man, the way he thinks, is not the way that you think. You understand when you were an unbeliever, you didn't think the way that you did now. You couldn't even put your, wrap your mind around why somebody would want to embrace the Christian ethic, right, at all. 
There's this dividing line, and it brings hostility often. And Paul, that's why he's brokenhearted. The friends that he was uh, closest with, the Pharisees, man, they studied together. They learned together. They sat at the feet of Gamaliel, their teacher. They even persecuted the church together. And then, Acts chapter 9, blinding light, Paul fell to the ground, and Jesus rescued him. And his entire life changed, and all the relationships in his life changed dramatically. And listen, when you become a Christian, it's going to be true of you too. It is. In fact, Jesus says some of the most endearing and precious relationships to you are going to get very challenging and difficult. It doesn't mean you have to be a jerk and worsen that, right? And you can. Haven't you met jerks for Jesus? I've been one before. Okay, don't be a jerk for Jesus. we got enough of those running around. But Jesus says, look, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And to set a son against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and siblings against one. What is Jesus? That's a hard, you know, they have these hard sayings of Jesus. That's one of them that's really hard to comprehend. All Jesus is saying is that there is no way for unbelievers to understand this new order of loyalty and allegiance that you have. And the only reaction they have against it, if pressured, is hostility. All things are new. They don't believe like you do. They don't love like you do. All things are different. And it's supposed to be that way. And that led Paul to deep anguish. But listen, on the flip side of that, let me say this. You are brought into a whole new relationship with people you never knew before. And you instantly have the deepest and most profound things in common. It's precious. Just like this church. Listen, I was telling my wife one day, I said, there's so many people that go to this church, I would not have even sat with them at the lunch table at my high school because I would have absolutely nothing in common with you. But now I have almost everything in common with you. At least the most important thing, right? Christ is our Savior. He's our Lord. We're living for His kingdom. That's the most important thing. We have the same worldview. We have the same values. We have the same heartbeat. That's true historically in the church. You look, if you read the list of disciples and you read Matthew the tax collector and then you read Simon the zealot, do you realize before Jesus... If those men were put in a room together, they would have killed each other. And I mean that literally. Literally. Simon the Zealot was part of this elite group, and they were called, they were called the Sickards, I think. And it was a term used for uh, an assassination-curved, razor-sharp sword that they would hide in the folds of their garment. They believed that anybody that paid tribute or taxes to a foreign pagan ruler, for example, paying taxes to Rome, they believed that they were traitors they were outlaws and especially somebody that collected those taxes so you put Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot in a room together they're going to kill each other they're going to assassinate one another but add Jesus to the mix and they're best their closest associates isn't that amazing I can remember the first mission trip I ever went on was Thailand it blew my mind 2001 and we're up in the mountains defying gravity going to this village we've never reached before and there's a guy that we picked up on the side of the road that was a Christian. He was walking up there to, to join us. And he and I were in the back of a truck. And he could speak very, very broken English. He was wanting to be a translator. He just wasn't there yet. You know what I mean? But he could speak enough English. And he looked at me and he said, you, me, I never do accents, right? He said, you, me, brother. You, me, brother. And I just wept, man. I was just a 21-year-old kid and I understood what he was saying. Here's a guy that's, he's Asian. He's not He's not uh, American or whatever, you, whatever designation you want to get. He lives in a different country, okay? He speaks a different language. He lives in a different culture. I've never met him in my life. 
And in that moment, in the back of that truck, he and I have more in common than my fraternity brothers that I spent, you know, years with at college. True story. Because we have Christ. Christ is who redeemed us. He's who's changed us. It's who we're living for. It's amazing. Really amazing when you think about it. You have a new way of seeing things. You have a new way of value, a new code of living. good friend of mine was a pharmaceutical rep when I first moved to Florida and lived in the church. And uh, look, no, if you're a pharmaceutical rep, more power to you. The, the person that he worked for was, was terrible. And he basically forced all of his employees to lie. You know, as a pharmaceutical rep, you're supposed to visit a whole bunch of doctors every day. And uh, they were asking him, are, are you meeting your quota? Are you visiting with, you know, eight, nine doctors? And he said, no, it's impossible. Who can do that? I work from sunup to sundown. Or, yeah, sunup to sundown. And he said, I've... I've Five at most a day, you know, because I'm doing everything that our checklist is saying you're supposed to do. And they said, well, bud, you got to get eight in your quota. And he's like, well, but I can't. I mean, I have to sleep for at least four hours. And I'm like, well, do what everybody else does and lie about it. He's like, lie? You don't like intentionally lie, like saying you're doing things that you're not? And the guy's like, yes. He said, like, you're my supervisor and you're telling me to, li- to lie. And he says, yeah, you could, I mean, you got other options. You, you can either do what everyone else is doing and make the department look good or... You could move on. And my friend, you know, he was sharing this in a little small group I was a part of, and he said, man, I can't, I can't do that. And my heart went out to him. That's, that's, not a, that's not a big deal for an unbeliever, man, to be deceptive and, and to lie and to bear false witness. But it is for a Christian. It should be, at least. It should be. It's at least, at least give you pause, <laughs> right? One of my favorite movies is uh, Chariots of Fire. Eric Liddell, 1924. Summer Olympics, he's representing his country. The Flying Scotsman, he's going to compete in the 200-meter run, which he's the champion of, and it's a no-brainer. He's going to represent his country, and everything's going well except for the qualifying heat is on the Sabbath. You know, he had maybe different views than some American Christians have on the Sabbath, and he refused to run, and his country was so enraged and infuriated, but he wouldn't do it. And you say, why wouldn't he, man? Why don't you just, just bend a little bit? Because a piece of gold and the acclaim of his country didn't mean nearly as much to him as his own personal integrity and honor to Christ. That's what the movie is really all about. And by the way, if you watch the movie, he ran in the 400 anyway and like broke a world record. Pretty incredible. There's a division there that's deep. The book of Acts, kind of the same idea. It says, all these people that never had met before from different nations came under the power of the gospel, were converted to Christ, and suddenly it says they, have, they had all things in common. They were giving up their land to one another to, to meet one another's needs. That's, that's amazing. I was going to show you this, this slide. I don't know how much longer we'll, we'll have here, but I wanted to. Uh, this is David Brainerd. How many people have heard of David Brainerd? Okay, he was a very intelligent young man, Lived in the 1730s and 40s. He was very promising. He went to seminary to be a, a Presbyterian ordained minister. Um, and he got kicked out of Yale for, <laughs> for saying something like one of his teachers, uh, the, the chair that he was sitting in had more grace than his teacher, and the teacher overheard it. And he got expelled from Yale, and he wouldn't publicly confess it for whatever reason. He regretted later. Uh, so he got kicked out of Yale. He couldn't fulfill his dream of being a Presbyterian pastor, but you know what he did instead? How many people know the story of David Brainerd? He went to the Stockbridge Indians in three different states, actually four, Delaware, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey, okay, five. 
And he spent the rest of his life taking the gospel to those Indians. Even though he was very weak, he was very sick, he was very afflicted. He died, actually, he died at 29 years old from tuberculosis. But he, he kept journals, man, that Jonathan Edwards actually edited. And uh, his journals are the most influential book, bar none, in the 18th century. And it inspired missionaries like Jim Elliott, Henry Martin, Adoniram Judson, and many others. Um, this is what John Piper wrote about him. Brainerd's life is a vivid, powerful testimony to the truth that God can and does use weak, sick, discouraged, beat down, lonely, struggling saints who cry out to him day and night to accomplish amazing things for his glory. What distinguishes David Brainerd, I've read his journals, what stands out to me is how brokenhearted he was toward the Indians because back then people treated them like animals. They treated them like savages. They wouldn't talk to them. They made no efforts at reaching them with the gospel, but David Brainerd would ride by on his horse every day and his heart would just be broken. And God used the whole yell thing, the expulsion. You know, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks all the time, right? God used his expulsion from Yale to drive him as a missionary to the Stockbridge Indians. And I just want to read a few, I want to read a few of the uh, journals, journal entries that he had. He was offered, in the very beginning, a pastorate at East Hampton. You know, Edwards was in North Hampton, and this guy was in East Hampton on Long Island. It was one of the fairest, pleasantest towns on the whole island and one of the largest and most wealthy parishes. It'd be a dream for a young pastor. And this is what he wrote. April 5th, 1744, he turned it down. He said, resolve to go on still with the Indian affair, if divine providence permits. Although before I felt some inclination to go to East Hampton, where I was solicited to go, I could have no freedom in the thought of any other circumstance or business in life. All my desire was the conversion of the heathen Indian, and all my hope was in God. September 18, 1742, felt some compassion for souls and mourned I had no more. I feel much more kindness, meekness, gentleness, and love toward all mankind than ever. December 26, 1742, felt much sweetness and tenderness in prayer, especially my whole soul, seemed to love my worst enemies and was enabled to pray for those that are strangers and enemies to God with a great degree of softness and favor. July 2nd, 1745. Felt my heart drawn out after God in prayer. Are you hearing a theme here? Prayer, prayer, prayer. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is going to say, my heart and my prayer for Israel is that they would be saved. You start with a broken heart, you move forward in prayer, and then that helps you leverage your evangelistic efforts. That's how you're an effective evangelist. He says, especially while riding and in the evening could not help crying to God for those poor Indians. And after I went to bed, my heart continued to go out to God for them till I dropped asleep. One more, okay? On July 21st, 1744, David Brannard heard that the Indians were preparing to hold this idolatrous feast and dance the next day. Not dancing was idolatrous, an idolatrous dance, okay? This is before the Baptist. Anyway, this... <laughs> This morning, about nine, I withdrew to the woods for prayer. I was in such anguish. Sound familiar? I was in such anguish that when I rose from my, my knees, I felt extremely weak and overcome, and the sweat ran down my face and body. I cared not where or how I lived or what hardships I went through so that I could but gain souls for Christ. I just love that example. And again, this is not like, be like David Brainerd. This is when you allow your heart to be broken by the lostness and the hostility and the unbelief around you, it propels you, man, into evangelistic efforts. 
That was true of Paul. That was true of David Brannard. It was true of Henry Martin, who ran out of a mosque and said, I cannot bear existence if the Lord Jesus Christ is to endure such blasphemy. That was the heart that beat in those men's chest. And it was Jesus' heart. Listen, Jesus knew the sovereign plan, didn't he? And yet he extended his hands over Jerusalem and wept and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've wanted to gather you like a hen does its chicks, but you were not willing. Jesus had a broken heart for unbelief. Paul felt the unceasing anguish of knowing that his people had rejected their Savior. But instead of seeking to ignore it or altering his doctrine to negate it, he lived with it. You know, you know I've, it can be so overwhelming sometimes when people close to you are, are persistent in their unbelief. It can do a number on your theology even. There was a man who came to this church the first year we planted. He came here every week and he expressed an interest in counseling. I met with him and his wife to counsel them and he and I became friends. He loved this idea of grace, man. We begin to meet and talk every week. And then one day I brought up the, the subject of judgment and then he bristled against it. He said, what do you mean Judgment. I said, man, you've been going to our church a long time, bro. I mean, what the Bible says is Christ is coming back to judge. You know, and if you die in your unbelief or if the Lord returns, you, you'll die in your sins. And he wasn't very learned in the Bible, but he started pulling verses out of context. And it turns out this guy was basically a universalist. He told me, he said, look, your job and the job of missionaries and evangelists is to go around telling people that they're already saved. So that they can live up to that reality. And I said, man, that doesn't make any sense at all. We're, we're sending missionaries to like closed countries where it's against the law to go there. And their life is in jeopardy just to tell people you're good. <laughs> you imagine that? You travel, you risk your life. You're like, hey, i got an announcement to make before you kill me. I just wanted you to know you're good. All right, here, right there, please. Do it quick. That's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. And I used all the reasonableness, the rationale, the logic I could. And he was persistent. And I came to find out later he had people very close to him, spouse, children, parents, siblings, that had completely rejected Christianity, and he couldn't, his mind couldn't deal with it. So he had, to, he had to change his theology. Paul doesn't do that. He lets this truth settle. He lets the truth settle. If you do not embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will die in your sins, and that will be a tragedy. It will especially be a tragedy for the very people that were of the same flesh as Jesus Christ, and that they were Israelites, they were Hebrew, they were Jews. And all the privileges and benefits that they had should have driven them to see him and embrace him for who he was, and yet they rejected him and executed him and crucified him. James Boyce wrote a 40-day devotion on the book of Romans, and I think I'm going to close with this today. How about that? You guys never thought I could preach a 30-minute sermon. I'm not doing it because you guys are very gracious. People tell me all the time, don't even mention time. You know, we're not even thinking about time, and I know you're not, but sometimes I am, and we've heard so much good truth today, haven't we? So I want to end with this. This is a good place to end. James Montgomery Boyce wrote a 40-day devotion for Romans, and he ends with five questions, and I just want, I want to ask you these questions, okay? Now, I'm talking to Christians right now. Do you anguish over unbelievers? Don't answer it out loud. <laughs> Just sit, let it, let it sit in your heart. Chew on these questions today, okay? Maybe I'll find a way for Megan to make a PDF if, if you want to chew on these or I can send you my notes. Do you anguish over unbelievers? Question two, do you anguish over those closest to you? 
siblings, parents, children, neighbors, colleagues, co-workers. Do you anguish over those closest to you? Because I can tell you right now, those are the hardest people in the world to reach. And the people you love the most, are, is, man, that can bring the greatest grief upon you when they reject Christ. Number three, do you anguish over those who are your enemies? This is all coming out of this first five verses here. I mean, has anybody put a hit on you? <laughs> right? I can remember, man, reading that for the first time. Seriously, the first time I read the Bible, I read that. That 40 Jews took a vow to not eat or drink until Paul died. And I remember thinking, I hope they kept their vow. Because I know that at the end of the story, Paul lived for many years. And I remember thinking, that's totally not the heart of the Apostle Paul. He would have stopped on the side of the road and said, hey, I know you're there. Come out. Come on. Get out of here. I'm going to preach the gospel to you because I love you. And it breaks my heart. What you're, why are you wanting to kill me? What have I done to you? You know, that's the Apostle Paul's heart. Do you anguish over those who are your enemies? Number four, do you anguish over those who are great sinners? Do you anguish over those who are great sinners? I'm tempted to make a, an additional point here. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't, I don't think I will. Did somebody say, praise God, who said that? <laughs> Go for it. Oh, okay, maybe I will then. Man, when I get together with certain pockets of believers, and it turns to politics, um, man, I just there's a lot of aggression and hatred. There really is. Guys, you know what the Bible says? Paul said, I would have men everywhere lift holy hands and pray for kings and authorities over them. In, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he said that we may live a quiet and peaceable life. Pray for all authorities. And you know, you know who was the emperor when Paul wrote those passages? You know who it was? Nero. You know what he was doing to Christians? He was sewing up Christians in wild animal skins and unleashing starving lions on them. Others, he was dipping them in wax and putting them on a stake in his garden and lighting them on fire for illumination. And Paul's telling us to pray for them. To pray for them. Man, we don't have it nearly as bad as them. No matter what political candidate ended up in office that you don't like, I can promise you, we are so far away. So far away. I was reading, I was reading yesterday, uh, just trying to get to the bottom of, okay, Valentine was supposedly a real saint, a real person. Uh, supposedly this saint named Valentine, legend has it, he lived during the reign of Claudius II. And Claudius II was this big, you know, he was a, he was a Roman emperor and he loved war. And he thought young soldiers would fight more fiercely if they weren't married and had children at home, right? So he outlawed marriage. Only problem with that is marriage is sacred, right? He who finds a wife finds a good thing and finds favor with the Lord on and on. Peter says it's the grace of life. So there was a guy named St. Valentine. People would come to him and say, we want to be married, but it's outlawed. Will you help us? He said, sure, I'll help you. And he was in secret marriages. Claudius found out and had him stoned and beaten and beheaded. We don't have it nearly, I've, I've never had to perform a wedding in secret from fear of the government, ever. Anyway, there, I made the point, so. <laughs> Thank you. Do you anguish over those who are your enemies? Do you anguish over those who are great sinners? And here's the fifth one. Do you anguish over, anguish over those who have great privileges? And here's probably a big one for me. You know, Jim Elliott, when he was called to the mission field, one of the first books my mother ever gave me was Jim Elliott's journals. And his mom and dad tried, when he was going to uh, a hostile, uh, even 
he was going to a really dangerous, unsafe place for Christians to go. And his mom and dad were grief-stricken. And you can understand that. They said, Jim, don't go. There's plenty of missionary work to be done here in the States. And he said, they have the law and the prophets and Moses and the dust on their Bible covers is their own condemnation. I'm going. And I know he was, he was right and resolute in what he was saying. It's so easy at the same time, though, to resent the very people that have sat under incredible gospel privileges, right? It's easy to get fed up with people that should know better. I'll say it that way. I was reading the other day, the average household has 4.3 Bibles. Did you know that? We have 380,000 churches in America. And I know not all of those are Protestant evangelical churches. But it's easy to get angry. It's easy to get angry at people who profess to be Christians and they've sat under spiritual privileges. But Paul says, hey, look, the Jews met that criteria and he was brokenhearted over them. So maybe today, we'll end here, maybe today the Lord wanted us to consider what is our attitude what, what is our posture toward people who are outsiders, who are unbelievers? Are we living up to our mission and to our motto? Are we really the insiders who exist for the outsiders? Or are we the insiders who exist for the insiders, right? It's easy to just keep yourself at the center of the universe. I was reading the other day, astronomers tell us that uh, it's a good thing that the sun, which is 30,000 times bigger than the earth, is at the center of our galaxy, or solar system, not galaxy, right? Scientists, correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, it's a good thing for the sun to be at the center. Do you know what would happen if the earth is at the center? It wouldn't be good. If you're thinking clearly, the right thing would be for the sun. Let's say it this way. If the sun were a person, if the sun were a person, the right thing and the loving thing for that person to do would be at the center of your life. And the loving and safe thing for you as a planet or a moon or an orbiting body would be for you to step on back, step on back, and put yourself in orbit and keep yourself there. Let the sun be at the center of your universe, not you. You're not the center of your universe. And when you take yourself out and let Christ be at the center, I think these things that we see in Romans are going to fall into place, right? Helios... Heliocentric, that was, that was considered heresy by the early church. You believe that? Because they believed the earth was at the center of everything. They couldn't fathom if the sun was actually at the center. Anyway, those are our questions for today, okay? We only got through question number one on our outline, but we're going to finish that next week. Let's, let's pause and, uh, and let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the time you gave us today. I didn't get to finish what I wanted to say, but I think I finished what you wanted me to say, Lord, and I pray we could just leave here today asking ourselves these, these hard questions. <clears throat> is our heart broken over our unbelief? And is our heart broken and are we in anguish over the unbelief of the outsiders around us, Lord? And what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that conviction? What are we going to do with those tears? Is that grief going to drive us to do hard things? Somebody once said that, that grief is sorrow with nowhere to go. That's a lie. We, we know exactly where you want our grief to take us, Lord. You want us to make fast tracks to those unbelievers who are in our lives. And I know, Lord, there's not a person in this auditorium today or watching from home who doesn't have the name or the face of an unbeliever in their mind right now. Maybe it's the person who annoys them and disgusts them and aggravates them more than anybody else on the planet. Maybe it's a family member or a neighbor. Maybe it's a best friend. I pray, Lord, today, today they would be resolved to pray for this person to let their anguish and their grief sit deeply within their heart. 
and to take action to, to, to go to this person, Lord, and share gospel truth and, and live a transform and a redeemed life in front of them. And I pray, Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, they're an outsider and they don't even know they're an outsider, Lord. Way of an unbeliever is hard, Lord. They have seen hard things, experienced hard things. There's no peace within them, Lord. They feel empty. They feel guilty. They feel condemned. There's a sadness that's profound and deep. I pray, God, you would show them your arms are wide open. You will never turn away any broken, humble, repentant sinner who comes to you, Lord. It's not in your nature to turn away an honest, humble, broken sinner. I pray they would come to you today asking for <clears throat> forgiveness, asking for a new heart, asking for a relationship with you, Lord. They would be an outsider who became an insider because of your grace. Paul couldn't do anything to save any of the people he were brokenhearted about. He had great powers of reason and argumentation, but he couldn't trade places with them. He couldn't stand in their place condemned. Only one person could do that. It was you, Lord. You traded places with guilty rebels like us. We were so sinful you had to die, but we're so loved by you, you were glad to do it. I pray, Lord, people would come to experience that transforming grace today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Kyle, you got a song for us? All right, well, this is the time in our service where we have a song of reflection. It's called our Selah. You've probably read that 